Welcome to The Conversation, a podcast about educational technology, learning sciences, and instructional design. This week, we're talking about experts and novices, and specifically how experts differ from novices. But before we get to that, I'd like to introduce my guest for this week, Brittany. Tell us about yourself. Hi, my name is Brittany. I am a fifth-year student um, uh, here at school. I currently finished my student teaching experience, and I'm now interning in uh, the district I student taught at. Um, I love to learn um, as part of the reason why I wanted to become a teacher. I wanted to show my students how much math could be fun because a lot of times students find math to be pretty boring. Um, my mom is a teacher as well, so I was always inspired by her. And uh, yeah, that's a little bit about me. Great. Thank you. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you too. So this week we're talking about experts and novices. What did you think about this week's topic? Um, I actually really enjoyed this topic for me. I'm always intrigued with like experts, um, especially when now I'm working in the classroom. Um, kind of some of my students that I teach are very well versed and know a lot of the things before I even get to them. So it kind of goes to show you that they're kind of willing to learn and on their own and go from that. But then there are other students who more like to kind of be guided through that. Um, so I kind of like to compare it to my classroom environment and how my students operate. But I think also from my own standpoint, how I continually like to learn and how, you know, what, I guess, ideologies and what practices I use to continue learning is that considered expert learning. So I was kind of evaluating myself, too, as I was reading these readings. I see you came prepared with a lot of great questions. So why don't we start with those? Because I think those are really good to get us started. So for one, I was thinking, um, is there ever a point where we're going to stop becoming expert learners since we've reached a point where we can no longer refine our skills? So in the reading, they talked about like the Rubik's Cube with the child Felix. And is there ever going to be a point where he can no longer improve the speed of his time because he's physically impossible to do so? Or if it becomes that case, in what direction will his expert learning go in regards to the Rubik's Cube or will he find something else to explore? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I was thinking about, you know, I don't know enough about Rubik's Cubes to know what the next step would be. So I, this is kind of speculative on my part, but the reading talked about a lot of thinking that went behind the strategies he was using. And I was wondering whether he would continue to develop his expertise in that direction. So maybe not necessarily improving on time, but improving on the way he approaches the problem of Rubik's Cubes and allowing him to have more flexibility. Because I understand that it's you start off jumbled and then you're supposed to get it back into its original state, right? So mm -hmm, yeah. I feel like that could be a source of expertise if he continues to find ways to make the problem-solving part more efficient. I guess that would be... But you're right. There are a lot of things that are limited by just physically you can't do something as fast because there's just a limit to that. Right, And I guess the other possibility is that he would extend his ability to solve Rubik's Cubes, to solve other things in terms of pattern recognition. I think that would be an area that he could possibly explore. I agree. I was like, when I was reading it, I was like, he said he improved his time because he kept improving. And I was like, physically, eventually, he's not going to be able to do that. So in my head, I was like, will he then, which I'm assuming he would, use the skills towards his expert learning in a Rubik's Cube and translate into something else, as you mentioned, like pattern recognition, um, towards maybe something like a Sudoku puzzle. Maybe that's not something physical, but it's still recognizing pattern and where the numbers go within the boxes. Um, so I think that 
that was something to me. I was like, huh, like that's interesting to me. And I guess like that would have been more of like an aha moment for me per se, because like I always talk, think about too, like athletes try to improve their times. And when they do anything like swimmers or runners, and sometimes eventually there's going to be a point where you cannot improve that time. So I think that just goes for life in general, not just things such as like a rubric's cube. Um, as far as like the other Rubik's cube example, when we're talking about like colors and shapes, um, I found that to be really interesting as well. Um, because when you think about it, a student, and they do mention this in the article that a student who is blind or maybe even colorblind too, if you want to go that route, cannot really see the colors or see the colors that well, recognize the colors on a Rubik's cube. It's not, that's a disadvantage that they have as opposed to everybody else who's solving the Rubik's cube. So then talking about, well, then there was like an all white one and, um, yeah, with the braille, but yet though that takes them longer. So therefore they have a disadvantage at really ever improving like significantly their speed because they have to take the time to read the color before they can process where it has to go. But I did think the shapes though, and then comparing them, the shapes were more interesting because that is more, it's quicker to recognize which shape it is as opposed to reading a a word. And I think the article also pointed out that not everyone who is blind can read Braille. So it's a step in the right direction because that reading came from the universal design textbook, I guess. And we haven't really gotten into that yet, but the whole idea of universal design is that you allow content to be accessible to people who need visual versus different means of attaining information. And and I think a lot of teachers rightfully feel overwhelmed by having to think, oh, I have to provide content in, in all these different ways. And the Rubik's Cubes is an example where it's one solution to all these problems. And I think the same could be done for instructional material as well. And also, just to head off any confusion, this is not visual learning. This is not learning styles. This is completely mm-hmm. different. Um, yeah. I, I know that they do seem to overlap, but I just want to say this is not about learning styles. This is about accessibility. I also um, was thinking, too, um, when we become expert learners on something, do you think that there's ever a way for us to regress and become less of an expert on that topic. And I think that kind of ties into this week when we were talking about the brain and for like, when they talked about Jennifer mentioned in her podcast saying that like, when you don't use it, you lose it. And so I think that if um, we don't, let's say going back to the Rubik's cube example, if we don't practice the Rubik's cube because we have X, Y, and Z going on, then eventually we will slow down our time. But I wonder too, in learning, like how quickly that could change too and how we can come become less of an expert on a topic. Well, before we answer that, we should ask, well, what are the key differences between an expert learner and a regular learner? So I think like an expert learner, um, not I think, um, an expert learner is somebody who's always willing to learn and is always challenging themselves to go past what they already know and to learn something new or a new approach. Whereas I think a novice learner is just content with how they learned it the first way, they understand it, they may not want to pursue the topic further, but rather they're still intrigued by it and they are knowledgeable on it, but not in the extent and the depth that an expert learner does. Yeah, and the on page 32 of the expert learning chapter, figure 2.8 provides you the characteristics of an expert learner. So I think to, to just to answer your original question, whether expert learners can regress or stop being less uh, become less of an expert i think i think once you stop doing more most of these things 
you could become close-minded or you become you you know you stop wanting to learn i think that would be when you rest or when you stop becoming an expert and i think it's possible for that to happen when there are fundamental shifts in the field when suddenly a new perspective or new ideas are introduced that's often that often happens when experts find time reconciling their original beliefs with the ongoing beliefs so this is talked in the first class about the pre, you know the preconceptions and the having an organizing principle to fit new ideas and facts into your some kind of a framework if some, somehow the framework changes you know which happens often like in scientific fields sometimes if some a radical new concept is re- introduced and that kind of goes into the community of practice thing that one of the readings talk about is when there's a shift in a paradigm and that's when a lot of times experts they're left behind if they don't follow those uh, those characteristics that that's in the figure. Mm-hmm. I also think too, um, upon looking at the figure too, that like they build on one another. Um, that you have to be like a motivated learner and a goal directed learner kind of thing to in order to become like resourceful and knowledgeable. Like I think that that's like the top tier of like an expert learner is that they know where to find the information and that they're knowledgeable about it enough to talk about it, but they still want to go for more. Um, but yet like strategic and goal directed and purposeful and motivated, like those are the two base work ones to become an expert learner. It's kind of like a ladder in which you have to go on. I like the examples that compared experts and novices. I think they provided several examples. There was one in the middle-ish where they talked about historians versus students. So the historians who were asked to take a quiz and they actually didn't do as well on the factual questions and the students but when they were given real world example, they were use, able to use the historical training. And it made me wonder, like, what does it say about designing lessons around primarily around memorizing facts? Well, I think that um, also they talked about in that reading as well, that um, it's easier for expert learners to access that information when they know where it is in their brain. But when they talk about and I think this kind of goes along with like regurgitating information that like when we're taught things and we're told to memorize it like we're not being told like where it fits in Mm -hmm. in categories so therefore we have trouble um when we regurgitate we have trouble remembering it long term and figuring out where to access it because it's so scattered throughout but yet when we know where it fits into like historical context it's easier for us to gather that information like if we talk about you know like we talk about the presidents and stuff those presidents fit within certain areas of history. So you know kind of where you're um, looking at that information as opposed to if you're talking about like, let's say maybe a movement in general that maybe wasn't so heavily centered around like a president's um, time in office, then maybe it kind of becomes a little bit more blurred as to when, who was in, who was the president, who was in charge, um, what else happened during that time period. Yeah. And you said you're a math teacher, right? Yes. So the reading also gave some math examples. So I thought it was I thought it was interesting about how they were talking about how students they often do well uh, in terms of memorizing formulas because they know which chapter it's on. So if it's a chapter on this kind of formula, they know how to use it, but then when you present them in a test when this is randomized, they have trouble and they suddenly realize they don't actually know as much as they thought they did because they've been memorizing and they've been using the chapter title as the context. Um, And I thought that was interesting. I was wondering, as a math teacher, do you have any insights on that? 
I think that's also why some kids particularly struggle with like the regents at the end of the year, because that is like a cumulative test of everything that they've learned. Um, and also you kind of don't know necessarily like how much emphasis there will be on one topic, like necessarily like in class, you know, as a teacher, we cover X, Y, and Z, but maybe one topic of like that chapter is going to be like a primary focus for the exam um, just because that's what the state wants to focus on. And I think that, you know, when it comes to, I particularly love teaching geometry and I teach it this year, um, that that a lot of geometry is straight memorization, um, especially when it comes to talking about like proofs. Um, you have to memorize like the rules and the theorems that go along with that. And like when it comes to, that's just triangle proofs, but when we're talking about like quadrilaterals and all those other kind of shapes, it also then kind of jumbles the students because they, they're used to solving the triangle proofs and they really, we focus heavily on that. But then when it comes to doing like a triangle proof, I mean, a quadrilateral proof that has a triangle inside of it, they get so thrown off because they don't, they're not able to really recognize it. We kind of just worked on just the quadrilateral proof in that of itself, as opposed to marrying the two. So I think that also when concepts, especially in math, are kind of infused into one another, that students have a hard time accessing both of those parts in which they stored that information in their brain. So in that sense, then they're trying to reach for both parts at the same time and then end up sufficing one area of the brain over the other. And then it ends up not working out for them, which I think is an unfortunate struggle for some of the students that we teach. The other example comparing the the experts and novice was the two historians and then the group of future teachers. This is when they would talk about adaptive expertise. And so one historian was, um, I think the example was about Lincoln. So one, one historian was an expert on Lincoln. The other one was not. And then the comparison showed that even, the, even though the historian was not an expert, was able to use what he knew about history to make sense of the documents and that the future teachers were unable to go beyond a superficial discussion of it. That's important because the history teacher or the historian was able to monitor his own thinking and make meaningful rationale of what it is that he's trying to understand and how he's trying to understand it. And that's why oftentimes when I ask students to do something, I also ask about the rationale, which is kind of, I think math, you would do that uh, in mm -hmm. a similar way when you ask students, show your work or something, right? You know, sometimes students know what the pro and pro goal should be, and they jump right to that, but they don't know how to explain exactly what they're doing. And I think that's a huge part of learning that's proven in that example, because if you don't know how, why you're doing what you're doing, mm -hmm. you're never going to find it meaningful. You're never going to find it something to be um, worthwhile for you. And I think that that's a lot of times what students struggle with in math. They're like, I'm never going to use this in real life. So why do I need to know how to do it? Why do I even know why I'm doing it? Mm -hmm. And it, as a goal, a personal goal of mine as a teacher is I always like to make sure that my students understand why they're doing it or how it relates to their real life. Because at the end of the day, like students want to learn something that's meaningful to them and that will be purposeful in their life, not something that they just need to know to pass a standardized exam. Um, so I think that going back now to what you're saying, the rationale that like a lot of students, they need to be able to explain themselves because that 
further under, gives them a further deeper understanding of the material when they're explaining it or when they're explaining it to another classmate. A lot of times I'll have them turn to the person that they sit next to, they sit in pairs and explain it to them. Um, and a lot of times it gives them a better understanding, but it also gives the student um, that is explaining everything to the other student a better explanation and a better way of understanding it as well. Yeah, I like the how the expert differ from novice reading revisits the first reading that we started the semester with, with the mm-hmm. three learning principles. So understanding the preconceptions, um, giving students the facts and the conceptual framework to organize it, and then the importance of metacognition and the chapter. Um, and the importance of that is, is to say that experts do that. Experts have a framework and they are able to do metacognition so that when they're approaching new topics or new information, they're able to continue doing that um, so that it's not like a one-time thing that they're, they're doing in class, but that they're, they're able to continue doing that in their, in their expertise. And, and that's what makes them experts. Um, mm-hmm. and, and the idea is that we want students to be on the path to becoming experts um, in, their, in whatever topic you're, you're doing, or at least know what that world is like so that um, they can learn more effectively. No, I definitely agree. Um, I even like talk like the three learning principles. Um, I think one of the most important ones is um, aside from engaging prior understanding, but self monitoring as well, um, because that kind of gives the learner an idea of what they do know and what they don't know or what they need to kind of work on. And I think when it goes towards expert learning, I think that, you know, self-monitoring is a great way to see where they can improve because expert learners are kind of, um, they're intrinsically motivated to learn more or to learn more about that particular topic. And I think that once they self-monitor themselves or self-assess themselves, they're able to kind of see where their weaknesses are and how they can continue from there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's why I know we're going to talk about Bloom's Taxonomy next week. That's also where you go from low order thinking to high high order thinking within the taxonomy. The high order thinking tends to be more of what experts do, and the low order thinking tends to be the recalling of factual questions, that uh, information, that kind of thing, which is important, but but definitely not enough for you to become an expert or become knowledgeable in a in an area. Um, so I want to say, do students become expert learners only when they've been learning under a controlled environment? Um, or do we think that it's vice versa? What do you mean vice versa? I mean, not vice versa, but like, do you think that they become expert learners under a controlled environment only? Or when they have an uncontrolled environment, do we think that's where expert learners thrive best? Okay, so uncontrolled as in like unstructured, out of school yes. kind of thing. Well, I mean, I think I think it de- depends. This kind of goes back to the Krishner and the other author's name who I can't pronounce. <laughs> Apologies for that. Um, the do learners know best thing? Remember, like they said that self-education is not possible or not effective. Remember that part? And when, so I think it just depends on the content. So because remember Felix, he learned by watching YouTube videos, right? So that kind of um, contradicts that 
that argument. But but Rubik's cube is not something that you would learn in a class anyway. That I'm assuming. I'm sure there are classes on that. But um, <laughs> so I think it depends. I would say that that it it would be possible to learn in in an uncontrolled. Um, but I can definitely see why a controlled, structured environment would be much more efficient and um, much more effective in terms of getting the outcomes you want. Uh, so that's my, my take on it. What do you think? I think um, like a after I posed the question like that immediately, I thought of like Felix again. Um, and I know that like that's not something, as you mentioned, that you learn in a school environment. But to think about like when you're younger and you talk, you're learning like ABCs and one, two, threes. And like, usually that starts at home, but you get that reinforced when you're in school. Um, so I think that that's like kind of an X, you, I don't want to say become an expert, but you memorize the alphabet, you memorize your numbers, at least one through 20 before, you know, you go to school. And I think that that's a great example of learning, becoming an expert learner per se in an uncontrolled environment, meaning at home when there's a million other factors going on and then going to a controlled environment where you're having a teacher, you know, go through those same things with you. Um, so I think that that's just a good example of how maybe how expert learners can thrive in both environments and go from there. The nice thing about the classroom is that it, it provides an incentive structure. It gives you the feedback so that you know whether you're learning something accurately or not. Having a, an expert like a teacher there definitely makes it a lot easier. In my experience, like when I was in school, um, I've had a teacher that didn't really have a thorough understanding of the discipline. And I, I kind of wanted to know, like, if a teacher doesn't know their discipline thoroughly, do we think that this motivates the expert learner to kind of go beyond what their, prof their teacher or professor knows? Or do you think it hinders them to pursue new knowledge and just says, well, like, if my teacher doesn't know it, then I don't need to know it either? That's an interesting question. I would say the expert learner would go beyond the teacher while the non-expert learner would not care. That would be yeah. my take on it. Is that what, what, what do you think? If they are motivated, obviously they need to be motivated to be an expert learner, but I think that um, they, I think it might almost discourage them in a way because they're then not sure where to go from there. Like where, if like they're not getting the basics from their teacher, then how are they supposed to know where they're supposed to go from there, like content wise, like, or how much they're supposed to know. And I think a lot of times that the explorer needs to be strategic in like how they go about it and how they go about learning the new information. But I think that if they don't have those foundations that they need to kind of go forward on their own, that it might hinder them or discourage them. I don't know. I just like that's going based off of a personal experience um, that I had that I kind of was not that I'm calling myself an expert learner by any means, but as somebody who is very motivated in math, I had a teacher that stopped and was like, I don't know how to do this. And I kind of just sat there and I was like, wait, what? So I was like, I was kind of like even shut down a little bit because I was like, how am I supposed to figure out how to do this if my teacher doesn't even know how to do this. And like, I love math. So in a way, like I've always been motivated. And again, I'm not calling myself an expert learner in any means, but I am somebody who's very motivated to figure out math and to work hard on it. Mm -hmm. So I, 
that's why I was curious um, what your thoughts were on that. Well, it sounds like you are an expert learner if, if you have that characteristic. <laughs> but, uh, but I mean, I mean, in the case of the math teacher, was your math teacher just, I don't know how to do this and I'm not going to bother telling you? Or is, I mean, the better move, and I think this is in some of the, one of the readings, early readings, um, that said that sometimes it's good. Actually, no, it is this week's reading. Um, sometimes it's good for the teacher to be able to show that he or she doesn't know something and to show and to demonstrate how he or she is going to overcome that or learn that or say, here's how I would approach it, you know, um, that teachers don't have to know everything because you don't, you know, no one knows everything. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think that can be a good teaching moment if done right. Like even in my example, as I, like I can kind of build on that a little bit. Um, in my student teaching experience, like it's been a couple of years since I've been in the classroom learning algebra two trig or you know geometry, and like sometimes I even had to stop and say to my students, "Give me a second. Um, hold on one second. I'll get you the answer," mm-hmm. because I don't want to give them the wrong information. Sure. But like, I always made sure that I came back to it and said, okay, well, here's what you would do and would explain it to the students. Um, Because I think that the worst thing, I don't want to say the worst thing, but one of the worst things we can do as a teacher is falsify information to the students. And then they continue to think that that is true. And then you turn around and say something completely different the next day. And they're like, wait, no, that's not right. And then you have to backtrack. And I think that that in turn like interrupts like their learning and their the patterns that are forming in their brains, those con, um, connections, because they thought they understood something and it's completely getting flipped on its head. I think that's kind of what we were talking about. Like that was the realization I was having when we were talking about learning styles. Like, you know, we were told one thing and then it was flipped on its head. And I kind of was like, wait, what? Like I was very like dumbfounded when I was watching the TED talk. I was like, oh, my jaw was like to the floor because it was something that I was told always to be true. And then it, tended up not to be. And I think that as teachers, like, you know, we don't want to give our students that experience where they think something's true. They go six weeks until we learn something else. And then they go, wait, that doesn't make it, but you didn't teach us that. So. It's absolutely okay for a teacher to say, I don't know, as long as you follow up with, I will get back to you. Right. And then I I think uh, on page 34, 39 of the expert learning reading, it's from Alison Posey. She said um, it can be powerful for, for students when teachers expose some of their own vulnerabilities, leaving themselves open to fault or fail, and therefore model that such taking risks is part of learning. I think that would be the better response to say, I'm not sure, I could be wrong, and then, but then to close the loop and say, here's what I found out, you know, maybe in the next lesson or something. Yeah. That's a good question. Um. Thanks. Um, I also think too, um, and I think this kind of goes back to what Marina had mentioned one week in her voice thread um, about one of her students. But um, it's I wanted to know, like, how has tech, today's technology influenced expert learners and learners in general? And are these learners exhibiting the flexibility in their thinking to be considered an expert? Um, and I think that goes back to what she was saying about how her student looks up like on Wikipedia, like information and then comes back and like tells her things. And that's not true. So I want to get your take on that. Like, how do you think technology's influenced expert learners and learners in general? 
if the expert is truly an expert, then the expert should be able to contextualize that information for the student to say, yes, this is right, or yes, this is right, but also know that, you know, whatever. I think that would be probably my approach because I guess it depends on what the student presents the teacher or the expert. And I, I know in one of my responses in my wrap-up of that week, I was saying that Wikipedia is not as bad as y'all think it is. But I think hopefully the expert would be able to um, use his or her expertise and give any nece- any necessary context for the student to say, you know, is this true or not true? Yeah, I just, I found that to be really interesting. Um, Because like, again, like we all talk about how Wikipedia is such like a discredited website. But at the end of the day, too, like there is some basic information that you can get from there. I wouldn't say that use it and cite it in a research paper or a master's thesis. But I think that it's definitely a great place to start when you don't know anything about a topic. Mm -hmm. Um, And then from there, then you can go onto other websites and see like, do they compare? Is what Wikipedia had um, considered to be a credible source? Or is it maybe a little bit false and other websites are just crediting that information? Um, But I think like today with technology being at um, students' fingertips, um, I feel like everyone's considered to considering themselves to be an expert just because they know a lot about a little, like they know a little bit about so many various different topics. Technology has definitely changed what it means to be a teacher. Mm-hmm. In the past, in the pre-internet age, I guess, educators might be seen as holders of knowledge. But now if you're an educator, you really need to change the way you teach and what you teach since, as you said, it's easy for students to just look things up. And so your job can't just be about importing facts. Um, I think that also then piggybacks onto my next question. Um, How do you think technology can create higher level thinking amongst expert learners and then encourage them to think about information more abstractly as opposed to maybe just memorizing facts? Well, that's the big topic for next week. But for now, I'll say that I think a lot of technologies are great at If you think of Bloom's taxonomy, which we'll also touch on next week, a lot of technologies that are both easy to design and use target the lower level skills like recall and remembering. If you think of Cahoots, for example, which many teachers use, a better use of technology that would be the ones that allow students to do more to develop those higher level thinking. And so I hope by the end of next week, you'll have these models to use to help you evaluate different technologies for education. I also think um, I want to get your thoughts on this. Um, It's so easy to become bummed about making mistakes in learning. Um, So do we think that our outlook on life can help or hinder our ability to become an expert learner? Well, so what do you mean by making mistakes in learning? So in this case here, um, like if I'm going to relate it to math per se, if like they they take a test on like a triangle proof, let's say, and they make a mistake on a triangle congruence uh, triangle congruence theorem that you know they thought they picked the right one when it came to the diagram based on how they marked up their picture, but rather it was not based on the information that they were given and the information they were going to have to conclude separately. Um, do we think that that might hinder like? And then they get like all well, bummed out saying, well, like, okay, I don't know this, so I'm not going to even bother. Like, I'll just get it the next time and I'm not going to go from, I'm not going to try to improve. Or do you think that, you know, they're going to say, okay, well, I got this wrong. I want to improve it. And then I'm just going to try from there. That's a great question. 
I think there are a few things teachers can do. One is to create an environment where failure and risk-taking isn't seen in a negative light, but as a learning opportunity. Another is to make mistakes part of teaching or to make it on purpose and invite students to catch your mistakes. And then there's something I didn't assign to have you read, but I should. It's called productive failure. Have you heard of it? Uh, No, I'm not really familiar with that. Would you mind explaining Um, it? So productive failure is when you let students struggle with a complex problem on their own and then let them share their approaches with one another before you step in to help them to the correct answer. So that's the reverse of what many classrooms are like, where you start with direct instruction and then have students do the practice. And in studies that compare productive failure with a more traditional approach, students who have to struggle on their own first outperform those who receive direct instructions. I'll see if I can find something short for you all to read as an optional reading because it's really interesting. I didn't, I've never heard of productive failure before. I'm definitely going to want to look into that a little bit more because I think that that is something, especially in math too, a lot of students, if they don't get it right away, they think they're never going to get it. So maybe like just finding a way to kind of show them that they can go from there. I think that's really interesting. Yeah. Gave me food for thought. And I think math would be a good place to use it because it is a subject that does have a more right and wrong answer situation where as opposed to maybe language arts where it's more interpretive and so yeah i think um, i'll dig up an article or or something that i can share i'll maybe post on moodle or something oh great yeah thank you um i also wanted to explore too um how like do you think that external factors such as home life or friendship troubles ever stop a student from being the expert learner we know them to be in class Yeah, I think so. I mean, Jonathan in his podcast had talked about the importance of knowing the student's home life and what students are coming in with. And if the students are coming in with anxiety or lack of sleep or any number of things, then that would definitely stop the students from, at the very least, concentrating on the lesson of the day. And then, of course, in the longer term, if if that is a persistent problem, definitely becoming an expert learner would be much more challenging. I wouldn't say impossible, but definitely more challenging. Yeah, and so that's a that's an important question to consider as well because the affective aspect of the brain, as we talked about last week, can impede or contribute to learning effectively. Granted, like I'm split between a middle school and a high school. The middle schoolers, you know, have more of these things where they're more vocal about their friendships and the drama that goes on in their life. And sometimes I notice that you know, they aren't really focusing that much on the lesson. Mm -hmm. And then I go to the high school and the students don't really vocalize that much. I think that's because like their age group and such, Mm -hmm. but they don't vocalize how exactly, you know, what's going on outside of the classroom to me or the teacher. So for me, I'm like listening and, you know, that you could tell like something's off, but when I ask them like, how are you doing today? They just don't reply. Mm -hmm. So I don't know how to like reach them. So I like, and I, don't really then know how it's influencing their learning because I don't know what exactly is bothering them. Maybe they're just tired that day or maybe they had like a bad experience in the class prior. But regardless, um, I was just curious on what your thoughts were on that. One way to monitor that is to do like the exit ticket thing that teachers do. I don't know Mm -hmm. if you do that in your classroom, but if, if you can kind of create a space where students can express their learning and then you can ask some of these questions and could be anonymous so that they don't feel put on the spot, but at least they can be honest. And that could give you an idea of how the class is doing. Maybe that's something Mm -hmm. you can do. 
with math, like a lot of times that we have these great ideas planned for exit tickets. And like, I myself have like done exit tickets a couple of times. Um, but like one time I was just so like trying to, I was so into the lesson with making sure that they understood it because it was a difficult lesson that I completely didn't even get to the exit ticket. And I remember just being so discouraged that like it didn't go to plan. Um, but like, I know too, that like sometimes it's better to, to salvage the time that we would use on the exit ticket first answering students questions and making sure they have more of an understanding than me just saying, okay, here's the problem and here, try doing it. And if you develop a practice out of it, and then students would just kind of find time to do it. And then, especially if you'd kind of do something with it, I guess. Yeah. And I love all your exit ticket information. Those of you who are doing it, I think uh, it's been really helpful for me to kind of monitor the class. I want to pivot to the idea of the growth mindset because Jennifer had mentioned it in last week's podcast and it was also mentioned in this week's reading. So I was wondering what you thought about it. Growth mindset, like I know, um, but like as far as like an expert learner, it's someone who's like continually growing and developing through like feedback and such from um, other experts and peers. And But they're, the main thing is that they continue to improve or they continue to want to improve. And I think that that's really important um, when you're an expert learner because that just goes to show that you're interested and intrigued and you're motivated to go beyond what is expected of you to know Mm -hmm. in that subject area. Whereas like somebody who has like a fixed mindset is just easily discouraged when they fail and they don't want to continue moving on from that. And I think the growth mindset, it's like not, it's so easy to change from a fixed mindset. I mean, from, to go from a growth mindset to a fixed mindset, but to go in the opposite direction, like it takes more for you to go from fixed to growth because you have to be able to accept that failure Mm -hmm. and use it as like a motivator to continue to learn. Um, And I try to instill that in my students because as you know, a lot of times, especially like when I'm going back to now the algebra class that I teach in eighth grade, they, I'm like, you guys are going to like use this throughout the rest of your life. Algebra is everywhere. And, you know, use like someone come, some of them get discouraged when they don't understand something. And I was like, no, like we're going to work on this. And I want you guys to like use this as like a challenge to become better because at the end of the day, like this is going to be something that's going to follow you for the rest of your life. Like you want to make sure that you understand it. And they kind of just looked at me, a couple of them were like, you're right. And I was like, that's, and they went from fixed mindset to kind of open to the idea of growing with it. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think as teachers, we need to instill that in our students because fixed mindset, I feel like it's, it's closes so many doors of learning to students. Um, and I don't think that that's necessarily the best thing for them. I think growth mindset is like, obviously it is, but it's mm-hmm. to be very important to the student. So, yeah. Do you talk to your students explicitly about growth mindset versus fixed mindset? Or is this something just is kind of your teaching philosophy? So I don't explicitly say like, this is growth mindset. I just talk about like in general, how like, don't be just, don't be discouraged by a failure and don't don't be closed off to trying to improve yourself. Um, I think also in eighth grade too, like they kind of don't really get the idea, the concept that much. I don't really have to have that conversation really with my high school students. 
Um, so that's, if I maybe said to them growth mindset and fixed mindset, they might have more of an idea of what it is. Mm-hmm. But in eighth grade, I definitely don't mention the words to them. Like I talk about the idea broadly, but I don't mention the exact words growth mindset to them. Right. Um, there's an infographic that compares the fixed and growth mindset. I'll put it on Moodle so that others can take a look. I find it very useful. It's one of the topics that I would have wanted to cover, but it's a good concept for sure. It's, uh, Carol Dwick is the person who usually is associated with growth mindset. And I'm glad that educators are building on this. I think it's definitely a good philosophy in terms of how you think of learners and how learners think of themselves. I think in general, like in anything that you do, growth mindset is just super important. Um, I think that it goes beyond your professional life and your educational life, but even just talking about like your home life in general, like if you don't know how to, if you say, okay, well, I've broken the sink. I don't want to, like, I don't know how to fix it. I'm not a plumber and just kind of stop there. It's so easy to kind of just say, I'll just have somebody else do it as opposed to you saying, well, like, I fixed something else in my house. So why can't I use that same thought process and try and see what tools I need and go from there? I guess the last thing is the expert learning chapter talks about communities of practice. And I was wondering, have you heard of communities of practice? I know it's like a group of people who share like a like profession or so. But as far as like going beyond that, like I don't know much more about that. It was a concept that originated with Jean Lave and Etienne Wenger, who were writing about how learning happens. When you see that phrase today, it's often used to describe what good learning looks like and how to cultivate these kind of communities. But originally, they were describing all kinds of learning, that all learning happens in a community of practice, where you have experts who define what counts as legitimate practice, and novices at the periphery who are trying to become part of the community. Experts would be the ones who are telling you whether you're doing something right or wrong. And this ties into your earlier question about whether experts can regress. In this context, they regress if, as I said, they stop having say or control over what counts as legitimate practice. In the original definition, the concept was also describing the power dynamics that go on as part of these types of communities. And that part has since been de-emphasized when you see it today and people focus more on the positive connotations of community and actually like the original concept better because it reflects more of the real world, I think. Like I know, I knew a baseline, but I think that that definitely gives me more of an idea of what its purpose is. So I think, thank you for that. Oh, thank you. So before we wrap up, do you have any other questions that you want to talk about? Um, I actually, when we were talking, I did have one more that came to mind and I wanted to know, and I guess we'll kind of get more into this with like Bloom's taxonomy and, you know, talking, I guess it kind of goes back to learning styles a little bit more, but when you're talking, do you think that there's a particular learning style that excels at being an expert learner or do, um, which is, and this is more of long lines of what I think. Do you think that um, it, an expert learner is one that balances different types of learning styles and knows that there's not just one that they can learn from? So are you talking about learning style in the way that we've been talking about it? Or are you talking about just generically how people learn? So like if we're going to like the quote unquote like learning styles, like the visual, the kinesthetic, like those kind of learning styles, like do you think that the expert learner knows that they have to, like that they would use a variety of them? Or do you think that they only, again, I guess this goes back to fixed and growth mindset as well. Do you think that they just feel that they learn best one way and that's the way that they become an expert through that one learning style? I mean, learners do have preferences and I think... In that sense, there's no preference 
that is better than another. So if you have a visual preference or you have an auditory preference or or any or whatever, my instinct is that it doesn't affect whether you become an expert learner or whether you become a better expert learner. I think that's just it. It just depends on the content again. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Well, I think that wraps up this week's podcast. Next week, we'll be talking about different models of technology integration and what role that technology plays in improving instructional design. I want to thank Brittany again. You will actually be back next week to talk about technology integration. So it was really great talking to you today. Yes, you as well. Have a great day. And I'll talk to you next week. Thank you. Bye.